So the reading this morning is from John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. If you want to find it in the Pew Bibles, it's page 1075. 1075. Jesus teaches Nicodemus. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Verily, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with every born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's only, one and only Son. This is the verdict. Life has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Peter. Please do uh, keep your Bibles open and let, let me pray for us. Uh, as we look at this wonderful passage together. Oh Lord God, uh, what 
incredible words these are of Jesus. They contain some of the, the most famous words about God so loving the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Lord, these are wonderful words. But they're also strong and important words for us to hear. You must be born again. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you'd help us to understand what this means. But much more importantly, we, we pray that we would experience it, that we would know what it is to be born anew, to be born from above, to be born by your Spirit. And so we ask that you would send your life-giving Spirit here among us this morning to speak to us, to meet with us, to transform us. Amen. What is a Christian? That's the, that's the question that we're looking at together on Sunday mornings at the moment. And we started last week by looking at Paul's words to the church in Ephesus, uh, which show us that a Christian is someone who's been brought from spiritual deadness in sin to spiritual life in Christ by grace through faith. Today, we're continuing that theme uh, of Christians being people who have experienced new birth and new life by looking at Jesus' words to Nicodemus here in John 3. And in particular, his stunning declaration, you must be born again. So Jesus clearly seemed to think that being born again was pretty important. In fact, as we'll see, he seemed to think it was essential to experiencing life in the kingdom. And so in the time that we've got together now, I just want to ask ourselves four key questions about the new birth that Jesus describes here in John 3. So what is it? Why do we need it? Who does it? How do we get it? That's where we're going. But let's just anchor this for us in a, in a, in a couple of the main, the main verses. Jesus said to Nicodemus, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. So the, the occasion for Jesus' teaching about the new birth here in John 3 is as part of an encounter with a man named Nicodemus. And we're told three things about Nicodemus right off the bat. First, we're told that he was a Pharisee. That means he belonged to a strict group of around 6,000 people who were considered, the, in effect, the spiritual SAS of the day. The term Pharisee uh, is itself derived from a Hebrew word meaning set apart. So all God's people were called holy or set apart, but these are like the set apart ones in the set apart ones. And they were highly respected among the common people as, having, uh, as people devoted to living out the Jewish law in the most tenacious way. And what's more, we know that they, unlike the Sadducees, believed in the reality of new life from God in the form of a hoped-for final resurrection from the dead. And the second thing we learn about Nicodemus is that he was a very influential man. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, of which there were 70 members. Now, when we think of Sanhedrin, kind of maybe think of like the cabinet in the government today. The top leaders. So we're beginning to build up a picture here, aren't we? He's one of 6,000 Pharisees. And of those 6,000 Pharisees, he's one of the top 70. 
So he's a VIP. And what's more, we know from later on in John's Gospel that he wasn't short of a bit of cash either. Later in John's Gospel, we're told that Nicodemus accompanied Joseph of Arimathea to bury Jesus' body uh, and took with him 75 pounds, 35 kilos of myrrh and aloes, a staggering amount of spices that would have cost a lot of money back in those days. I read, uh, as I was preparing for this, one estimate that would probably cost about 150,000 pounds in today's money. And he just has that line around that you can go and buy. Yeah, so do I. Um, Third, we're told that Nicodemus was a learned man. In verse 10, Jesus says, you're Israel's teacher. Now, think, if you like, Regis Professor of Theology at Oxford University. He's one of the brightest minds, one of the leading theologians of his day. He was perhaps uh, one of the senior teaching rabbis of his days, perhaps the, the first century Jewish equivalent of, uh, of Dallas Willard, why I love him so much and uh, have a soft spot for Nicodemus. One of his main roles was to instruct the people of Israel in God's law, God's Torah. But we're told they comes at night. Why? Well, John doesn't tell us, but... There are maybe a couple of reasons. Perhaps he's afraid of the reputational damage of the Regis Professor of Theology at Oxford University coming to an unschooled rabbi from backwater Galilee. Can't imagine that playing too well for his image in the, in the faculty. But whatever the reason for Nicodemus' nighttime visit, the important thing is that he came. He came to Jesus. And that's the most important thing for any of us. Not how we come or why we come or when we come, but that we come to Jesus. Jesus seems to have piqued his interest and he's been drawn to him rather like a moth to a flame. So he begins in verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus has clearly heard the reports of this miracle worker. Perhaps he's even seen some of the evidence of it. And he's looked at the evidence, as a good scholar does, and his conclusion is, this guy must be from God. It's a pretty good start, isn't it? And yet Jesus' response is rather puzzling. Jesus responds to Nicodemus' opening gambit, saying, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. To which, if you're anything like me, you're asking, What's that got to do with it? Nicodemus wasn't asking anything about the kingdom of God. So where has this reply come from? The point, I think, is this. In order for Nicodemus to see not just the signs themselves, but what the signs are meant to represent, i.e. that in and through Jesus, the word of God who is in the flesh, God's rule and reign is breaking in on earth as in heaven. In order to see that, one must experience an opening of the eyes of the heart to see spiritual reality. 
In other words, divine signs require divine help to interpret. Nicodemus has seen the signs. He's seen that Jesus must be from God in some way. But he can't see these signs as evidence of God's kingdom being launched on earth as in heaven. And nor can he see these signs as evidence of God himself as God's king, as Jesus himself as God's king. And I think the Apostle Paul helps us understand what Jesus means uh, with uh, these words from 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. He says, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are only discerned through the Spirit. In other words, Spirit can only be known by Spirit. And isn't that just what Jesus says to Nicodemus later on in verse 6? Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. In order to see spiritual reality, we must be made spiritually alive. That's the meaning of the new birth. The unspiritual self has no capacity to receive the things of God. So think of it this way. Imagine that you've got a friend who is born blind and she asked you to describe the color blue. How would you do it? (laughs) Exactly. You couldn't do it, could you? Why not? Because color is something that we experience through seeing. You could tell your friend that blue is a calm color. You could tell them that it reminds you of the sea uh, or the sky on a beautiful clear day. Uh, All of those are good descriptions and they might help your friend form associations between the color blue and the other senses that she has of touch and sight and uh, touch and taste and smell and so on. But is it an experience of the color blue? No. To experience the color blue, you need eyes to see. Just as an apple tree produces apples and a plum tree produces plums, so the spirit produces spiritual people, i.e. people whose eyes are trained to see the things of God. We can look at the cross and see Jesus dying on it with our natural eyes. But without the spirit, that's all we see. There were lots of people who saw Jesus hanging on the cross on Good Friday. But without the Spirit, what happened on the cross remains just a historical event. Without the Spirit, it's impossible to look at the cross and say, there is my assurance that Jesus loves me, that he died for me, that he has borne my sin in my place for my salvation. It's the Spirit that enables someone to say that. Without the Spirit, we can't see what the cross is all about. We can't see that it's all about God loving the world so much that he gave his one and only Son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Without the Spirit, all we see is a naked Jewish man on a cross. So... Let's move on to the second question. Why do we need the new birth? We've said that the new birth is a, the supernatural creation of the, uh, of the spiritual life in a person. 
And the next question is, why do we need it? So let's listen again to what Jesus says in response to this question. So uh, first in verse 3, he says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So the first reason that we need to be born again is because unless we're born again, we won't be able to see spiritual truth. We won't be able to discern spiritual reality. We will be blind to the ways and workings of God in the world. As Paul writes to the Corinthians again, uh, unless God makes his light to shine in our hearts, we will be unresponsive and blind to the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ. And second, move down to verse 5. Jesus says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. In other words, the problem isn't just that we can't see the kingdom of God without being born again, but that we can't participate in the kingdom of God without being born again. You can't enter it. The new birth matters because eternity is at stake. And in verse 7, Jesus puts it even more bluntly still, using hard words for hard realities. You must be born again. Not you may be born again. It's an option. You might like to consider it. Not, you might like to consider being born again as if Jesus is just giving tips for how to live a fulfilled life. No, you must be born again. Must. If you're not born again, you can't know God. So let's take some time to consider the implications of each of those words, you must be born again. First, you must be born again. It's personal. It's often said that God has no spiritual grandchildren. We cannot enter the kingdom of God by hanging on to the coattails of another, whether it's our parents or our friends or the vicar or the residue of a culturally Christian society. We can't do it. You yourself must be born again. It doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. Remember who Jesus is saying these words to. He's saying these words to one of the cabinet members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, who himself is one of the 6,000 spiritual SAS of first century Israel. You, Nicodemus, must be born again. And John Piper observes, all of Nicodemus's religion, all of his amazing Pharisaic study and discipline and law-keeping cannot replace the need for the new birth. He needed new life, not just new religion. High or low, rich or poor, young or old, we must all, all be born again. And notice this, we must be born again. It's an imperative. Jesus' prescription for Nicodemus isn't a new set of religious activities or an increased dose of religious zeal. He's got those in spades. Rather, what he needs and what Jesus thinks he's lacking is spiritual life. And where does this new spiritual life come from? Well, it's not from us to be sure. You must be born again. Who here gave birth to themselves? Yeah, exactly. 
None of us. It's something that happens to us. A.W. Tozer writes, we may as well face the hard truth that people do not become Christians by associating with church people, nor by religious contact, nor by religious education. They become Christians only by the invasion of their nature, by the Spirit of God in the new birth. We don't give birth to ourselves. It's a work of God in us and on us. And then Jesus says, you must be born again. Birth is a beginning. Jesus is saying that not only can we, but must we begin again at the beginning. There are some people who know uh, the day and the hour that they were born again. And by the words born again, John Calvin says, Jesus means not the amendment of a part, but the renewal of the whole nature. A new creation, a new being. The new birth isn't a spiritual paint job. The the new birth isn't superficial. The new birth isn't spit and polish for people who are generally, generally pretty good but need a little bit of extra help. It's the complete birth of a new person. We come into the world as those who are spiritually dead and the new birth is about new creation. More on that next week. Jesus is saying to us that our sinful human condition is so serious that it requires the birth of an entirely new person. Steve Harvey 2.0. And finally, Jesus says, we must be born again. The Greek word anothen can mean either again or from above. And it's highly likely that this is a deliberate ambiguity that both, uh, both meanings are intended. The point of saying that we must be born from above is to stress that it's something that God does. And the point of saying that we must be born again is to stress that, it, that it's a new mode of existence, that it's a new thing. Nicodemus was alive. He was breathing. You and I, we're alive, we're breathing, we think, we feel, we act. But we're not alive to God until we're born again. And the new birth is, is an event, a moment in time like our physical birth. Now, like I said, some people know the day and the hour they were born again. Others don't. But what matters most is whether you are. It's whether you're alive. So the third question, who does the new birth? I'll be brief on this because uh, we've already touched on it. The new birth is something done to us. In the words of A.W. Tozer, it's that invasion of our nature from outside ourselves. By whom? The Spirit gives birth to Spirit. The Spirit of God is the one who impregnates us with the seed of new life and who is uh, himself the midwife of this new birth. I love how simply Paul puts it in Romans 8 verse 9. He says, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. Really simply saying, if it, you're not a Christian if you're not born again. And you're not born again if you don't have the Spirit of God living in you. The Spirit makes us alive to God through Jesus Christ. That's why the Nicene Creed calls the Spirit the Lord, the giver of life. 
He's the one who gives us life with God. And Jesus says we must be born of water and the Spirit if we want to enter the kingdom of God. Water and Spirit. We need to be washed clean from the stains of our old life of sin, of living as if God doesn't exist. We also need the infusion of a new power to enable us to live life in relationship with God. And so many uh, biblical scholars wonder whether Jesus' words here are an allusion to the two baptisms that we all need. The baptism in water and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I think there's a lot of mileage to that idea because baptism, like uh, the new birth, isn't something that we do to ourselves. It's something that's done to us. We're baptized by another. Baptism in water is a sign of this new life, of our old self drowning and us coming up out of the water as a new person in Christ. No one can cause someone to be born again. And that, unfortunately, although I'm quite glad of it, also means that I can't preach you into being born again. Only the Holy Spirit can cause someone to be born again. When preaching works, if, if it works, it's because the Spirit takes hold of the words and opens hearts to receive it. And to receive it not just as an ordinary human word, as, but, but as God's word to them. The new birth is something God does, not us. The wind blows wherever it pleases, Jesus said. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. God's ways are mysterious. Frankly, they're way above my pay grade. I don't know why God's Spirit moves as God's Spirit moves, but like the wind, we can see the effect of God's Spirit moving in a person's life. Faith in Jesus. So on to the fourth and final question. How do we get the new birth? If, as we've said, being born again is something that God does rather than us, does that mean that we have no part in it whatsoever? Well, the short answer is no. The first thing we can do is we can pray. If the new birth is something only God can do for us, then it makes sense to ask the only person who can do it to do it. If you want to be born again, if you want to be made spiritually alive, to have your spiritual sense of sight activated, then the, the obvious step is to ask God. And um, forgive me, I haven't asked permission for this, but hopefully she won't mind. Kelly, a few weeks ago when you shared your testimony about how, uh, how, how you were born again, you, 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 you shared with us that you heard Jesus' words about asking you will receive, and then you asked and you received. That's what it means. And here's the wonderful thing about it. You wouldn't ask for God if God weren't already stirring your heart. So ask. And the longer answer to the question, what part do we play in the new birth, is look. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus tells Nicodemus, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Nicodemus would have been familiar with the strange little story from Numbers 21, which Jesus was referencing. I'm assuming you all are too. 
No, no, don't worry. It's not a quiz. I suspect most of us probably aren't. God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He'd brought them through the waters of the Red Sea. He'd fed them with manna and quail. He'd made water gush out of the rock. Uh, He had given them uh, a new rule of life by which to live and show the world the glory of God. But the people of God took up one of their favorite pastimes, grumbling. uh, Why did you bring us out here? Weren't there enough graves in Egypt that you have to bring us out here in the desert to kill us? And then in words that should make us all think twice before we take up that pastime, we're told, the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. And literally in the Hebrew, they're called fiery serpents because of the burning pain that their venom inflicted. These fiery servants, serpents even, uh, slither in and out of the Israelite tents. And all around the tents, just imagine the sounds of screaming as people are being bitten and writhing in agony. The cries of the injured. The cries of those who have lost a loved one already. And the people of God are cut to their heart at their sense of ingratitude to God. You know what? Turns out things can get worse than being in the wilderness. A lot worse. And they're cut to the heart and they call out to God for help. So let me just read to us from Numbers 21 uh, verses 9 and 10. He said, The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and he put it up on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake, all they had to do was look and they would live. It was that simple. Look and live. That's what deliverance boiled down to for the Israelites then. And what Jesus is saying is that that's what the deliverance, the new birth, boils down to for us as well. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Translation, look and live. So our part in the new birth is simply to look to Jesus. Look to him on the cross. If we look to him, we'll live. We'll experience the new birth. So the question is, what kind of looking is required? Because as I said, there were lots of people who looked on Jesus on Good Friday who weren't born again. The looking that brings new life is the looking of faith. Don't take my word for it. Let's look back at the text. We've already heard it in verses 14 and 15. The Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who, what, may have eternal life? Believes. How about the famous verse 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever may not perish but have eternal life. How do we receive this life? By believing through faith. But let's not leave it there because Jesus doesn't. Skip down to verse 18 with me. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, stands condemned already because they have not 
believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Let's just go for one more, shall we? It's not, it wasn't in what we were read, but it's right at the end of the chapter. Verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So what's the kind of looking that's required if we're going to experience the new birth? Faith. And faith isn't primarily about our giving intellectual assent to a list of propositions about God or Jesus or about how he saves us through the cross. Faith means trusting. It means committing. It means treasuring. More than that, John Piper writes, faith at its root is not deciding but seeing, seeing the beauty of Christ in the gospel as beautiful. Faith is a a looking away, not with the eyes only of our heads, but with the eyes of our hearts to Jesus. And it's a looking away to Jesus, not just as useful, he takes away my sin so I'm not under the death penalty due to me because of sin, but a looking away to Jesus as beautiful. Oh, how he loves us. Faith is looking to Jesus and marveling at all that God is for us in him. And here's the incredible thing about this kind of looking. A blind person can do it. This kind of looking is radically inclusive. Whoever believes but it's also radically exclusive. Whoever doesn't believe is already condemned. And this is the great binary of the Bible. Look and live, or don't look and perish. You see, the great scandal of the story of the bronze serpent is that the Israelites could actually still continue to die of snake bites. How? By not looking. The cure was there. As the proverb goes, you can take a horse to the water, but you can't make it drink. God gave them the means of deliverance, but they weren't compelled to look at it. All we have to do, Jesus says, is look. It isn't rocket science. You don't need a PhD from Oxford to look. It doesn't cost anything. You don't need a million pounds in the bank to look. It isn't age-restricted to the over-18s. You can be six and look. You can be blind and look. Anyone can do it. We can all look. And that's our part in the new birth, to look on Jesus, to look at the crucified one and to see in his life and death and resurrection both the sin that's killing us and the medicine for the sin that's in him. And so the question I want to leave us with this this morning is just this, are you born again? You must be born again, Jesus says. Are you born again? 
Not only can we be born again, but must we? Eternity hangs in the balance. And the sad fact is that there are billions of people in this world who aren't yet born again. Many millions of them, I suspect, in the church. They may be church attenders. Some may even be church leaders. But they're not born again. They're cultural Christians, people for whom religion is a formal, external thing, a matter of saying the right prayers and taking part in the right rituals. But they're still asleep. Their spiritual senses haven't yet been awakened. They can't see the kingdom of God. They can't see spiritual truth, spiritual reality. They might be alive in body, but dead in spirit, unresponsive to the truth and beauty and glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the all-important question, once again, is, are you? You. Don't get lost in the crowd. Are you born again? Have you, in those words of A.W. Tozer, experienced the invasion of your nature by the Spirit of God? How do we know if we've been born again? Because born again, look at the cross and see beauty. Born again people, look at the cross and see the love of God for sinners like them. Born again people, look at the cross and see the king of the universe enthroned upon it. And what if you don't see that? Ask and look. Ask the Spirit to open your eyes. Then look and look and look and look your eyes out if you need to on the risen Jesus. Look until you see him. Until you really see him. Can I suggest that as we, as we respond, let's let, let perhaps just stand if you feel, feel comfortable. And let's just um, stand, and, and perhaps you might just like to hold your hands out in front of you, just as a way of s- signaling your, your openness to God's Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I pray for anyone here today who is not yet born again. Lord, I pray that you would come into their lives, open their eyes, that they may see Jesus and treasure him. And Holy Spirit, I pray for any of us here today who need reassurance. Lord, would you give us that afresh today? Holy Spirit, come and give us life. Holy Spirit, come and open our eyes to to behold the things of God Holy Spirit, lead us to the cross of Jesus. Holy Spirit, help us to see there our sins as the nails that pierced him, as the ropes that tied him, the thorns that tore him, the spear that pierced him. Help us to to see the reality of our healing in his wounds, our forgiveness in his condemnation, our Life in his death, his love in our hate. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit.
and make us receptive to the good news of God's love. Conceive within us that faith that looks away to Jesus for everything and puts its whole trust in him. Come, Holy Spirit, that we may look and live. Amen. So we're going to uh, remain standing as we, we respond in song together.